So as a, if you've been with us, you'll know that the book of Titus, if we wanted to um, condense it to a short catchphrase, is really about how sound doctrine produces godly lives. Sound doctrine produces godly lives. And we saw this in chapter one when Paul highlights uh, how this is evident in the church, that the, there are certain leaders to imitate and those to avoid. In chapter two, Paul transitions to examining this principle in the congregation, so not just pastors, but those who sit in the pews, how sound doctrine then shapes various relationships. You have older men and younger men, older women, younger women. Chapter 3 now has Paul applying this principle in the public square, how our theology is evident in transformed lives before others, especially before the watching world. And so he traces our transformation back to its source, moving from the fruit to the root. And so first we'll see the proof of our transformation, the proof of our transformation. We look again at verse 1, and Paul begins instructing Titus by saying, remind them, remind them. You know, sometimes we need to be taught to be trained and instructed in the truth, be given new knowledge. Other times, as believers, We just need to be reminded, to be cognizant of what we already know so that we could apply it, so it could shape how we live. Now, what are we to remember? Paul lists the items. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. We'll stop there. Submit is a military term. It's the idea of arranging yourself under, putting yourself underneath another person's authority. And so before the government, as rulers and authorities, the posture we as believers are to adopt is submission and obedience. Now, I know immediately we think of all the exceptions, the edge cases where we're excused from complying. Yes, ultimately, our allegiance to God is first and foremost. So when the government commands what God prohibits, we must obey God. If the government tells us to kill innocent lives, we must resist. resist excuse me. Conversely, when the government prohibits what God commands, we must obey God. If policies outlaw the preaching of the gospel, we still share the good news of Jesus Christ. But outside of these clear situations, our transformation is proven not in resistance, but compliance. So that means pay your taxes, serve your jury duty, don't break the law. You see, when you get pulled over for speeding by the cop, you can't say, well, sorry, officer, I'm not of this world. That's just not going to fly. We may not agree personally with every policy, or we may not even like our civic leaders, but none of that, none of that is required to submit and obey. We answer to a heavenly authority, one who has appointed every earthly authority. In fact, the challenge is elevated for us. Not only to be obedient, but Paul continues, ready for every good work. The apostle is pretty sharp. He understands good works don't happen randomly. Good works require good preparation. You know this yourself. When you aim to do well on your project, what do you do? You meticulously review your PowerPoint slides, rehearsing over and over again what you're going to say so that it's polished, so that it's perfect. 
Well, it's no different when you aspire to do good things in the name of Jesus. Evangelizing your coworker usually comes after intentionally investing in a relationship. Serving another is only possible after you have managed your time well so that you have resources at your disposal. Why else do you think we need to be reminded of submission and obedience before? Because these things don't come accidentally, but by deliberation, by discipline. Paul continues, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Now, we've euphemized certain vices, what Jerry Bridges likes to call respectable sins, sins that are acceptable to us. And I think gossip is a clear one of these respectable sins. I mean, our society thrives on digging up dirt. We have blogs and magazines devoted to publicizing the latest rumor, the hottest gossip. But just pause and think about Paul's exhortation here. We can display our transformation as Christians simply by staying silent. Our refusal to slander says a lot. In fact, when we close our mouths, we might be opening up gospel opportunities. Now, the same opportunity is afforded when we refrain from quarreling. This is more than someone who is a bully, eager just to throw hands. Sure, we need to keep our actions in check, but our attitudes as well. You know, you might not physically rain fists on people, but are you just as combative with your words? Do your conversations quickly devolve into diatribes? Or how about this one? What's your demeanor? What's your reputation behind the steering wheel on the tennis court? or in the office cubicle? Are you known for being aggressive or approachable? Instead, Paul prescribes for Christians to demonstrate true strength in gentleness. You see, gentleness is actually just strength in control. Strength in control. It's harnessing your power, your ability to accommodate and serve someone in the best way possible. That whether you're encouraging or rebuking someone, you take into consideration their constitution, their situation, in order to minister to them most, or most effectively. You know, you, you know this probably from experience. Some friends you have to be firm with because they're oblivious. Others you have to handle with care because they're delicate. Be mindful of your mannerisms, tone, and diction. But gentleness is evidence of gospel transformation because we're no longer concerned with just ourselves, but we're looking out for others. Lastly, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, you might read this as one last reminder, but uh, it's a trick. This is the impression we get from the ESV, which is the translation you have in your handouts. Uh, It's not entirely accurate, so my bad. I set you up only to jack you. But it was to teach you a lesson that you're to trust no one. Just kidding. (laughs) The lesson, the lesson when it comes to Bible study is it's helpful to also consult multiple translations. And the NASB, if that's your translation of choice, it actually does a decent job of capturing the sense of this verse. Because in the NAS, Titus 3.2 reads like this. 
to slander no one, to not be contentious, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all people. So you have all these infinitives, to slander, to not be contentious, to be gentle, and then you have showing um, a different type of literary structure. But there's a nuance here. That courtesy, consideration, is not another item like the rest. It's included in everything prior. In fact, in the Greek, it's literally all courtesy, all people. It's that straightforward. And this is the secret to all these previous reminders. Our consideration for others is to get others to consider the gospel. When we are mindful of exalting Christ, of winning people to Jesus, and not just merely winning a legal battle or contentious debate, then we do good works in gentleness. Now, our next point is the profundity of our transformation, the profundity of our transformation. Verse 3 continues and says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now this verse starts with a very important word, for. Because for is now providing the motivation for why we should even care about how we live before others. And Paul is telling us, apart from the transforming power of the gospel, we were just like those who live in ignorance. We were in the same boat. But the grace of God came and intervened and changed us. And the apostle is casting the spotlight on us for emphasis. Remember who you were, we ourselves. And yet I think it is so easy for us to distance ourselves, right? We dismiss our rebellion as mental lapse or self-expression. When we sin, we are ready to quote, to err is human. But Paul wants us to confront our past so we appreciate our present transformation. So recall, do you remember your life prior to Jesus? Can you recall the foolishness of your pursuits? How you built your identity upon your achievements, maybe in school or sports? Or your contentment was wrapped up with how much money you had or whether you were dating or not? You used to wave your fist at God because no one dared tell you how to live. The very fact that you had to answer to another was offensive to you. Or maybe you constantly caved into your pet sin, enslaved to bitterness, anger, and hatred, giving yourself over and over to your particular vi- uh, vice of choice, maybe sexual imp- impurity, drunkenness. Now, Paul is overwhelming us with how wretched we once were. And these symptoms only reveal what's systemic. Sinful behavior, you see, is symptomatic of a sinful heart. Look, lying doesn't make you a liar. You lie because you are a liar. Hating someone else doesn't make you a hater. You hate because you are a hater. The heart of the problem, as we have said, is a problem with the heart. And why is this so important to understand? Because otherwise, a superficial diagnosis results in a superficial treatment. I mean, isn't this why some of you are frustrated in your walk with the Lord? It's because you've settled for mere behavior modification. You've relied solely upon your own effort. But listen, sinners can't help themselves. 
We've got heart problems. And to try to go at it alone is as foolish as a surgeon operating on himself. Verse 3 is not about some guilt trip. The apostle wants you to understand the profundity of your transformation. Look, we are not blown away when someone recovers from a cold. But we do marvel when they beat the odds to survive stage 4 cancer. Well, guess what? God does even better. Look at verse 4. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us from all these things we had in our past, all the things that were enumerated in verse 3. Now, this word for loving kindness is the word philanthropia, which is where we derive our English word philanthropy. Philanthropy. And you search greatest philanthropists, and Google returns Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. I just did this this afternoon. Now, what's the metric for their philanthropy? It's how much these magnets have given, how much they have donated to charity. But look, no one can hold a candle to God. He has given his son. Jesus Christ appeared in flesh and blood to save us. As we have studied in the book of Romans, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not by our own power, accomplishments, appearance, ability. Verse 5 says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul is taking it up a notch. It's not just the bad stuff that separates us, but even our best attempts can't make us right before a holy God. Like one drop of food coloring, sin stains the entire glass. Our most rigorous prayer, diligent Bible reading, generous giving, and sacrificial service are insufficient. Our efforts don't merit salvation. We need divine pardoning. Mercy granted because Jesus Christ saves us from our wretchedness by his righteousness. And the apostle continues to expand on the profundity of this transformation by detailing the power that brings it about. Our final point, the power of our transformation. Continuing in verse 5, he says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How exactly? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I bet a common question raised in the inductive Bible study was, what is this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's break this down. Washing is a very vivid word, right? An allusion then to baptism because back then it was synonymous with conversion. Once you confess faith in Christ, you immediately got baptized. It was and is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. That you have died to sin by going under the water and you merge out in newness of life. Which is why Paul calls this the washing of regeneration. Regeneration. Salvation, you see, is nothing short of the miraculous. That we are made alive regenerated, spiritually resurrected, if you will. Renewal, on the other hand, then continues to tease out the Christian life from the point of our conversion to our growth, 
You can say from the point of our salvation to now our sanctification. It describes the process that we become more and more like Jesus as we think like him. As we are rooted in the word, we are transformed by the renewal of the mind, Romans 12, 2. And both regeneration and renewal is done by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whom, verse 6, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit and this language of pouring out, some of us might imagine something mystical or spooky. Maybe we picture the Holy Spirit as this wispy, ethereal ghost, uh, a Christian Casper, if you will. I don't know. Maybe we associate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit with loud and ecstatic speech, like you have to have some special experience to really level up as a Christian. But the text anchors us from drifting towards these strange interpretations. I mean, what did Paul just write? What did he just say? What is the Holy Spirit associated with, attached to regeneration and renewal, conversion and transformation? So you don't have to go searching for a second baptism or some esoteric experience. Are you convicted by your sin? Are you growing in godliness? Then that is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit transforming you, granting you new appetites, godly desires. After all, you had no interest in those things prior to coming to Jesus. You see, the significance then of pouring out is not some charismatic, shalala, magical, I don't know, stuff that that goes on in your life. The apostle is stressing quantity, not quality. He says pouring out richly, that the mighty ministry of the Holy Spirit will not be limited by how much of him is given to us, because God is generous. We can be confident of transformation as believers because there will be no lack of supply. So the application then is to work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, not against him. He'll enlist his power through prayer, petitioning for greater sensitivity to your own proclivities, greater affection for the things above. Study the scriptures. Be diligent over his word so that the Holy Spirit can strengthen you, strengthening your understanding of the gospel and how to live in conformity to it. And if you need an example, you need look no further than the truth we find in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We know the wages of sin is death. But justified by grace, we have now the hope of eternal life. You see the transformation even there? From heirs of death to heirs of life. And not only is our destiny altered, but this transforms how we live today. You see, if I told you I was going to give you $10 million next year, I'm I'm not, obviously. But if I told you that, how would that change your life in the present? Well, you wouldn't stress about any debt you currently have, student loans car payments, and maybe you'd be more willing to enjoy a vacation, splurge a little on a gift, or treat a friend, maybe a practice pastor, to a meal. Maybe you would even consider a big move, 
a career change because you don't have to worry about finances. Knowing what you're going to get empowers you in the present. And to a far greater extent, we are God's heirs. We are guaranteed heavenly reward, comforted, confident of a better country. We have an everlasting father who has saved us, his children. And it transforms us from the inside out, from our private lives to the public form, because we have the hope of eternal life. Let's pray.